0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Anthony Cao. My guest today is Jin Ying Li. Jin Ying is an assistant professor of modern culture and media at Brown University. Her research and teaching focuses on media theory, animation, and digital culture in East Asia. She's also a filmmaker who's worked on animations, features, and documentaries, including the 2016 animation feature Big Fish and Begonia. Jin Ying has just come out with her first book, Anime's Knowledge Cultures. Geek Otaku Zai, published March 2024 by the University of Minnesota Press. The book explores how the rise of anime intersects with concepts of geekdom around the world. In fact, it goes beyond Western geeks and Japanese otaku and offers an especially deep look at Zai culture in China. Thank you, Jin Li, for coming on the show.
1: Uh, Thank you, Anthony, for inviting me to the show. It's my pleasure discussing my book with you and your audience.
0: Well, before we get to your book, um, I I see that you have a rather interesting academic background. Uh, You studied biotechnology and molecular biology before going into the cinema studies field. Um, What drove you to make that transition and become a scholar of media and cinema studies?
1: uh short answer passion i guess uh long answer um i've been always interested in film and animation ever since my childhood so i used to secretly dream to be a filmmaker even though i told everyone i want to be a scientist because that's what expected from you as a good student Uh, but i think a major experience that uh influenced my decision was my participation in the so-called DV movement in China in Beijing in the early 2000s when, when I was in college in Beijing I participated in some short film production projects and made several short films. And they were called the DV film at that time in China using digital video camera that became affordable and popularized among amateur filmmakers and the professionals alike at that moment leading to a very important um, independent and then underground filmmaking movement. That experience very crucial and helped me make the decision later. And also when I first came to United States, I was um, enrolled in the PhD program in molecular biology at UT Austin. And when I was in Austin studying biology, I sometimes went to the um, anime screening organized by the Students' uh, Anime Club at UT which is very fun and also make me realize how popular anime is among American students. Uh, I was a big anime fan, but it's really exciting to find uh, um, people share my similar interests on college campuses, particularly among a lot of students who study science and engineering and technology, including some of my lab mates in biology, actually. So that kind of experience, uh, realizing how anime is so popular among students studying science and technology, also very influential and inspiring for my later work, uh, my dissertation, which became this book, of course, about anime as a geek culture.
0: Well, we'll get to some of those connections with science and technology later, but uh, I'm wondering how you might summarize the overall idea of uh, your book, Anime's Knowledge Cultures. And also, I'm curious, you know, why you feel the book and its topics are especially relevant and important for readers to think about today?
1: Um, I think the simplest way to summarize the book is that it is about understanding geeks and the geek culture through anime. So the book simply asks, why does anime, which seemingly a very low tech medium, become somewhat a culture of new cool in the millennium that appeal to tech savvy geeks? Of course, the term geeks refer to now simply American computer boys in Silicon Valley, but rather refers to a much broader type of global knowledge culture that identify as otaku in Japan and the jai in China. So the importance of this book is because of uh, these geeks, otaku and jai are the most significant social cultural groups of our time, because they're the knowledge workers and consumers who program our machine. Manage our network system, leading the cultural trend of popular media, and also boost our economies. So, therefore, they are the core labor and the consumer force that form the backbone of current post-industrial economy and the society. Therefore, I believe understanding these geeks of Taegu and Jai as well as their cultural values is a key to understanding our current information society at large. Um, in other words, I think the topics of the book are important because geeks are important. They play a very crucial role in our current post-industrial society of information capitalism. Um, the book is understanding these geeks, otaku and the jai, globally through the transnational and the transna- uh, transmedia network that we know as anime. Yeah,
0: I really appreciated how the book has this global focus. Uh, you know, you have a lot of Western discourse uh, that, mm. that kind of focuses on on, on the Japanese-ness of anime and, and doesn't necessarily look at, you know, the role in other contexts, um, yes. you know, like the Chinese-speaking world. And you know, with, with each of your book's chapters, you are introducing some pretty interesting phenomena or concepts um, that anime has helped either inspire or shape, whether in China or, or beyond in a global context. And you know, I'd love to walk through uh, mm. these concepts with you and, and give our listeners a brief taste of each one. And uh, the first... A concept here is the the subculture of of zhai, which i think most chinese speakers will probably know but uh for anglophone listeners um may not be as familiar as a term mm-hmm. like otaku or or geek so uh what is dai and and how did that notion arise amidst the importation of of anime to mainland china and you know what is it, the importance of of dai in relation to anime
1: uh, jai is the Chinese word for otaku, but it also can translate as geeks. It is a long word borrowed from the Kenji character, which is the Chinese character in Japanese writing, from the Japanese word otaku, because otaku, when written in Chinese character, are pronounced in Chinese as yu jai. So the jai letter is simply borrowed from the Kenji, the Chinese character in Japanese uh, writing. It's the original meaning of otaku, yu jai, it means your house. So jai is taken from the Chinese character of a Japanese term. And uh, given this transnational, also translingual origin, because Jai is from otaku, right? So Jai evidently is not very unique to China. It's a part of a global system, a global popular culture, um, a knowledge culture, including the geek culture in the US and otaku in Japan. So it's a part of a very global popular culture reference. Uh, but of course, this even though it's a global knowledge culture, it has its own local variance and local specificity in China. And this local specificity is what I want to address by the notion of jai. So it's a part of a global culture, but has its own local taste and local specificity and experiences in this particular context of China. And uh, as I discussed in the book, The importance of Jaya is a historical development because it has developed since 1980s through the popularization of anime as important culture to China during China's own very profound social economic transformation in the past four decades, moving from post-socialist era in the 1980s during the reform and open-door policy to today's transitioning toward the knowledge economy. So specifically, it began with the, as the chapter outline, it began with the uh, broadcasting of Astro Boy, in the 19, in tele- television in 1980s, which is a very popular anime, and every child, including myself, was a big fan of in the 1980s. And then it developed through computer gaming magazine in the 1990s, and then eventually popularized through the internet fandom in the new millennium. And today, Chai culture is no longer limited to the anime subculture, has become a rather very general term to describe Chinese digital culture broadly. So in today, China talk about Jai, people referring to something much broadly, including uh, digital gaming, internet commerce, and so on and so forth. So that is why jai and the giant economy became a rather popular keyword in China in, 19, uh, in 2020 during the COVID pandemic. Everybody talks about giant talk economy, may say us from the uh, pandemic because people believe the online digital culture may save Chinese economy from the impact of pandemic quarantine. So Jai is started from anime subculture, but then eventually become mainstream culture that broadly referred to any digital um, cultural practice broadly. And because of Jai originally developed from anime fandom, and expanded to a much broader and even mainstream digital knowledge culture with very wide-ranging impact, Particularly in China's transition toward so-called post-industrialism, so we know now China is in this difficult transitioning from the cheap labor-based manufacturing economy to an information-based knowledge economy, and moving from made in China to so-called creative in China. And the argument in my book is, Jai culture play a very important part in this transition in China, and there's a history of Chinese high culture, therefore provide us with a perfect case study to demonstrate how anime played a very crucial role in the emergence and development of a post-industrial knowledge culture in a socially and historically specific context in China.
0: Hmm. And you're mentioning fan communities and fandoms Mm -hmm. uh, as you were talking about, Zai, and one other thing that you talk about in a book is this phenomenon of fan subs, uh, subtitles that are created by fan communities around mm-hmm. uh, anime and, and more broadly, imported media content. What is so interesting about these communities, uh, especially within the context of China?
1: Uh, fan sub uh, refers to um, subtitled and translated video by fans among fans for themselves. Um, it is a uh, fan culture that represent a form of voluntary labor, that provided by fans among themselves for free within the community. So it's a free labor serving the community. And this free labor is driven largely by the desire and the demand for communication within the fan community. For example, to share knowledge, to share the understanding of their cultural passion. Therefore, in this book, I call fans of uh, the Sort of the way in which fence up organizes itself in the book is called a communication labor, which is a form of immaterial labor because it's knowledge labor. It's an immaterial labor that has become a fastest growing production force in today's digital economy. For example, a lot of labor today is driven by communication, like Twittering, Facebooking. So they could all be considered as communication labor. And the is a very interesting example of this communication labor because it's serving a particular knowledge community. And this communication labor enables Fansub to become a very powerful medium to create a global knowledge community among anime fans throughout the world through their collective production and circulation of knowledge and information. So it's a knowledge community specifically organized by the free communication labor. And so, therefore, through of we can understand how anime fandom, as a knowledge culture, create a new mode of organizing labor and production through communicative networks among fandoms, and which create a new kind of community and new kind of uh, knowledge environment. And uh, that actually is the significance of the fandom. And I think um, those function of this communication labor to generate a knowledge sphere of community is what makes so meaningful and significant in knowledge culture as a way of organizing labor and production. And I think this meaning and significance is not specifically unique to China, though, because. it is a cultural practice that is widely popular. You might find a up in many different languages in Chinese, Spanish, Japanese, sometimes even, or Korea, or Hindi, or English, of course. Um, for example, um, in my anime class, I teach at Brown. A lot of my students, most of them American, actually uh, watching anime mostly in fence up too. So it's not just unique to China. And so therefore uh, I see it as a very transnational and global practice. And that's why in this chapter, I analyze anime, uh, Chinese fans of anime fans of in Chinese together with those English version side by side sometimes because they share a lot of similar features. So I think this is phenomenon not very unique to Chinese in particular but rather to a global uh, system of knowledge culture organizing its own community
0: yeah well on the note of something that maybe is a little bit more unique at least in china and japan compared to the west you uh introduce uh and and examine danmaku or uh, bullet Mm. subtitles which if you go to a chinese video site like bilibili it's like it's very it's just there it's a it's a feature of the site but if you go on someplace like youtube it's completely absent you know most people in the english sphere may have never uh just conceptualized of these things so what is danmaku and uh, what does its popularity signify when it comes to you know anime geek culture uh more Mm. broadly
1: uh, demaku is a Japanese term. It's also called demu in Chinese. They're written the same way in Kenji. And the demaku, the literal translation is bullet curtain. It is a unique interface design to render the user comments flying over videos on screen. So your screen, the video seems to be covered by a curtain full of bullets. That's why it's called bullet curtain, Damaku. It was originally developed by the Japanese video sharing platform, Nikoniko. And it was introduced to China through um, anime fan platforms such as Bilibili, as you mentioned. And then it was widely adopted by many different media, including cinema, television, video streaming, social media in China. So therefore, I think today, Damaku become a very mainstream and prevalent media interface. It is even safe to say that Damaku has become a default interface for Chinese digital video culture broadly. So today, not only Bilibili, Bili, you go to most any, almost any Chinese video sharing platform or site, you will see Damaku. it is everywhere. Um, and I think, yeah, Damaku is almost entirely absent in YouTube or any many Western video cultural context. However, I probably would caution against saying it's a complete absence from vast viewing sharing service entirely. Because if you notice, TikTok has something similar to Demaku, right? So it also has comments, even though it's not as invasive as Demaku on Bilibili, but it has similar comments over the video, right? So through TikTok, which is also developed by a Chinese company, oh, of uh, the comments over video interface may also be partially introduced to some Western video sharing culture, particularly for young uh, young users, though probably with a much lesser degree than Damaku in East Asia. And uh, I think the most interesting thing about Damaku, as my book argues, is that it, there's a sense of strong conflicts, tension, or we may say incoherence or indecision that is happening on this interface between comments and video. That is, the viewers constantly struggle whether to read the comments or to watch the video. So anybody who has watched the demo video knows you're constantly facing these polarizing desires between reading the comments versus watching the video. And these two modes are simply not compatible with each other and they're constantly in struggle in conflict between each other. And that is why in this chapter, I describe a demo interface as a, a contact zone because as a contact zone, it characterizes this conflicting and the struggling and the incoherent relationship between the common function versus the video function between information platform, versus a video content between what we may call a cybernetic pleasure of information searching versus a traditional visual pleasure of watching an anime video. And this incoherence is very important because this contact zone of incoherence and indecision no, between the comments and the video, between the platform and the content, is very effective. It literally makes you feel anxious, sometimes has a feeling of anxiety and agitation. For example, my mother hated Damaku I mean, every time she felt this totally destroy her viewing experience of anything on Bilibili. By the way, my mom is really love Bilibili, but she hates Damaku. Um, and this affective experience, of course, that Damage, she's not Autaku, right? But she loves online videos. So she watched a lot of things on Bilibili, but she really hates Damaku. So this affected experience, I believe, demonstrates one of the key issue, or maybe a central crisis in the knowledge culture of anime given, because anime or geek culture broadly is also marked by the same tension between information navigation versus a meaningful absorption between multiplicity versus singularity. To put it simply, as anime geeks, I mean, as anybody who's anime geek may share the same experience, or as knowledge worker broadly, we are facing similar problem. are facing similar struggle because we want to produce and consume as much information as possible but at the same time we are desiring for some sort of meaningful certainty absorption so there's a constant struggle as a geeks between you want to be having more information versus having some certainty of meaning the struggle is demonstrated by this context of this indecision on them and the important but the problem is the more information we have, the further away we are moving from certainty or the meaningful absorption. So there's a, really a conflict and a tension here. And I think this tension between information overload versus meaningful certainty is what we feel at the damaku interface. That's why Damaku is a very interesting example as an effect of contact zone. A zone of indecision, indecision between comments versus video, between having more information or concentrating on this particular video. I think the problem with Democritus is you just cannot concentrate. You have to struggling between more information versus this particular focusing this particular video, and I think this affective tension, this struggling between two different things, is what I call a cybernetic artifact in the book because it characterizes one of the key feature and the problem in knowledge culture of any big Eden or big culture broadly. That is, we just have to struggle between more information or the singular focus of something meaningful.
0: Yeah, I mean, Danmaku are certainly very, uh, (laughs) they can be very distracting, but also very amusing uh, in their own ways. Um, Well, I want to move us from, you know, the things perhaps floating above the videos to things within the videos itself and and dive into your discussions around these specific tropes and and techniques that are evident in uh, anime. Um, And you dive into this concept of the mecha child. Um, Help us understand what a mecha child is and what um, it might help us uh, understand Mm -hmm. about post-industrial knowledge work and, you know, late-capitalism?
1: Backer Child is a concept I invented in the book to characterize a popular motif in anime, which unfolds through this intimate assimilation and identification between machines and the child figure. For example, Astro Boy, right? Who is a child, but also a rabbit. Or Akila in the film Akila, who is a child, but also kind of a super uh, machine. And for example, also other examples, including um, the Mecha Palace in Gundam series or never, New Genesis wrong, the children have to be constantly being wrapped up within this machine of Mecha. So uh, all those examples demonstrating sort of integration and the simulation between a children figure and the machines. And if you watch a lot of anime, you may notice there are actually a lot of uh, Mecha, cha- Mecha children and the Mecha child motive is very prevalent. Um, almost majority of anime in the science fiction category um, features a certain kind of uh, child figure who are closely associated with machines or technology. So the Mecha Child motif is very, very popular in anime, particularly sci-fi anime. And this motif of Mecha Child, I believe, can help us understand knowledge work and the culture of geeks in two ways. Firstly, this Mecha Child who is often imagined in anime as this very mythical figure? You know, Astro Boy is a very mythical figure with a perpetual use and creativity. For example, Astro Boy never aged, right? So, and in Evan Gleon, all those children really never age. Even in the new, latest Evan Gleon film, I don't know whether I've watched it, the child remained a teenager, right? This one thing about Becca Child, it did never grow up. They have a perpetual use of creativity, and this model of a mecha child who has a perpetual use of creativity serve as a, an, an ideal vehicle of identification for geeks, autoku, and the who often widely perceived in popular culture imagination, or maybe sometimes even self-identified as childish. But creative figures. So, for example, we often think about geeks as childish. at this Silicon Valley is a children's industry, and we often consider geeks, otaku, as fanboys or computer boys, who are equipped with very valuable skills. And that their skills are also valuable for a particular kind of techno economy that is also imagined with this mythical temporality of eternal recurrence and renewal. For example, we often believe digital economy can keep renewing itself in cycle of updated gadgets such as iPhone 1, 2, 3, whatever. So there's a popular imagination, digital economy can run you forever, keep renewing itself. Just so similarly as a as a mecha children who keep being creative without aging. In other words, um, this Mecca children crystallize our imagination that the geeks of knowledge culture and gen- geeks of knowledge workers in general can see themselves as mecha children. And because the knowledge work and culture of this geek are often indulge with this similar logic of creativity and perpetual use as well as the logic of human machine integration. So they are no longer so the reason they can be forever young and forever creative because they function as integration between human and machine as a mecha child. Just like the mecha children in those imaginary setting in anime, those children who live with as well as ad machines such as Astro Boy, for geeks who work and live as knowledge labor consumer, the logic of human machine integration is equally normalized, or sometimes as uh, ubiquitous or ind- indispensable. And even sometimes this kind of human-machine integration could imagine as fetishized, as therapeutic or empowering. So I think um, the way in which mecha children's imagination function is to provide geeks with self-identification. And through this self-identification, they see themselves as Mecca children. So therefore, when they see this human-machine integration in the Mecca children's imagination in anime, they see themselves having similar experience, that they themselves also live together with the machine. And this kind of human-machine integration for Geeks and otaku often sometimes normalized as something very routine or ubiquitous, or even sometimes fetishized, because it's something considered very empowering, desirable, and therapeutic. And secondly, I think the importance of this mecha-child is because um, this logic of human-machine integration, perpetuated by uh, these mecha-children figures, uh, also create a strong sense of techno-intimacy. It means um, Tabithemism means internalize the material and the symbolic structure of information technology into the daily life and habit of knowledge workers as both familiar and fantastic, both intimate and cool. Um, In other words, through this Michael Child motif, this anime create an imaginary milieu for knowledge geeks to have uh, intimate feelings with technology as if those technology are part of their life and being. And the more importantly, this sense of techno intimacy has also increasingly become a dominant cultural logic that is adopted by a wide range of techno culture form beyond anime. For example, the cute robot icon in Google Android. I don't know whether it's Google Android, but it's very cute robot icon, right? And this cute robot icon, just like a Michael Child, Create an aesthetic system that translates technological portability and immediacy into a structured feeling of intimacy. For instance, this cute rubber icon for Google Android makes us feel intimately associated with operating system of Android, as if it is part of our companion, part of our life, right? So we feel we intimately connected with this little rubber that called Google Androids. And uh, and in this, in this kind of uh, uh, field of techno intimacy, is very similar with how Mecha child operates anime. For example, if you look at the design of uh, Google Android, it's very similar to uh, a lot of Mecha children figure anime, such as Dorimo, right, which is a cute robot cat um, which can help you being a very helpful companion. So the way in which uh, technical inf- techno intimacy operates through Google Android icon work similarly as how mecha-child function in anime narratives. Um, so therefore, this figure of mecha-child is a crucial part of a much broader aesthetic system that evoke this very powerful sense of techno-intimacy. And this, this techno-intimacy is a very prevailing cultural voice of information capitalism because the system wants knowledge work to feel they're part of this machine this part of the information technological system so therefore this intimacy you include a knowledge worker into this whole system as their lives and their habit and their very sense of being
0: well on the note of uh, youthfulness and childishness uh, perhaps it's a good transition to another concept that you um discuss which is the concept of cybernetic play so no. how would you um conceptualize and explain cybernetic play and and are there any interesting examples that you're able to share from Mm -hmm. gaming and and anime and you know through those examples can we sort of understand why play is important to think about uh in this broader social and cultural context
1: Yeah, that's a a good question. It's very difficult to answer (laughs) Uh, because to understand cybernetic play, we need to first explain what is cybernetics. Uh, To put it simply, cybernetics is a scientific theory about information control. It's a central problem is about how a machine or how a technological system broadly can improve its performance through information feedback. That is how a machine can learn to perform better by learning from previous feedbacks. Okay, so how a machine can learn from the previous feedback systems, so therefore they can improve their performance in future operations. So they're learning through uh, feedback process. And uh, in addition, the theory is also based on analogy between information system of a machine and the neurological system of human. And the key argument is that the way in which a human learns is a similar as how a machine learns, which is also through an information feedback process in neural system. And this analogy between machine learning and human learning form the basis of a cultural understanding of cybernetics as post-human thesis. And the, in my book, the concept of cybernetic play is based on both this technological understanding and the cultural understanding of cybernetics. And the argument is that the play mechanism in games and also in anime, uh, transmedia system is also a cybernetic process through information feedback. In other words, cybernetic play is a mode of play. that rely on informative feedback loops to learn to play better. That is a player or a gamer try to improve his his or her performance through cycles of trial and error. That's how we play games. We try and try, which is a feedback system. And we learn from this feedback and to prove our performance, to learn to play better in future gaming. And the key argument in the book is that this mechanism of cybernetic play has become a very important organizational principle to structure, expand, and control anime's transmedia system that is known as media mix in Japan. For example, one way in which cybernetic play organized anime's media mix is operated through uh, a player or an otaku's position search for the so-called the true end in the gaming system by consuming and producing many many proliferating word lines as information feedback with trial and error. I think one example is the stainless gaze as a transmedia franchise. It started the game and developed into multimedia content such as anime, manga. And so the story is about time travel. So every time you go one time travel, you create a new word line. So by playing a game, you generate a lot of word lines, and there are many, many of them, countless of them. So there is a proliferating number of word lines. However, among all those word lines, there's only one so-called true ending. And the key of that game is to searching for this true ending. That's called the stainless gates, which is very specific, very difficult to find. In order to find its true end, this stainless gates, you have to play through all the other word line to gain all the information, the tricks you learn from the feedback from all this word line in order to improve your performance. So you can get to this very specific true ending and this process demonstrating what is mechanism of seven the play, that is by playing all those proliferating word lines, you learn, you're, you're learning from those feedbacks, you improve your playing performance, and therefore you can you can achieve this goal of achieving this one particular true ending. And I think the importance about the seven the play, it is just position as tension between making this many, many word lines as possible versus finding and designing for this one singular true ending. In other words, when we are having so many different stories, so many different time travel word lines, why we are still focusing on this one particular true ending, why it is it important? I think the subnatic play to demonstrating there this tension between consuming and producing as many word lines as possible, versus looking for this one singular true ending. And this tension between this multiplicity versus singularity between information proliferation versus this singular control, demonstrating the central problem in our knowledge work culture of any which is to say we have this struggling between, again, the similar struggling as uh, Damaku, the struggling between having as many information as possible versus reaching this singular true end, finding the singular meaning. So there's a tension between this um, polarizing impulse between information expansiveness, that is to get as many information as possible, versus regulatory uniformity, that is to finding this true ending, this true meaning. And I think this tension, this tension is between multiplicity versus uh, singularity, between as many word lines as possible versus this one singular true ending, characterize not only cybernetic play, but this whole theme of I call cybernetic effect in this whole book about anime given. That's as as a geeks, anime geek or other kind of geeks, we are facing this similar problem, right? We're trying to struggle between more and more information versus this singular meeting singular ending and this tension i think generate uh, demonstrating the key cultural problem of our information society broadly because the society is organized by the cybernetic system and the cybernetic system is also structured by the same problem crisis between uncertainty and control because the whole information the whole cybernetic system is about the system is having too much information too much uncertainty so, therefore, we are looking for finding a certain kind of pattern or control because of this increasing uncertainty. But because the information is too much, certainty is forever impossible. So, the cybernetic is to keep reaching the goal of certainty and control, but never can realize it. So, there's a keep tension, keep t- kind of um, agitation of perpetual perpetually reaching the goal of control, but never can realizing it. And this tension between this desire for control versus information uncertainty is also caused our problem and crisis as knowledge culture in today's society. And this problem is demonstrated by the cybernetic play in geek culture and anime specifically.
0: To, to move on from gaming to perhaps other you know, notions of, of creation, um, your last chapter delves into the Superflat flat movement uh, by Takashi Murakami, who's a Japanese mm. contemporary artist um, for our listeners. Uh, could you explain what the movement is and you know, why it might be a useful lens through which to view uh, modern social media and perhaps computing more broadly?
1: So Superfly is art style that was characterized by Takeshi and as some, something that influenced by the anime and the manga. Um, it is a visual system that organizes the image field in the distributive and the hierarchical manner. So instead of a singular perspective of a singular vanishing point, we are now facing multiple perspectives with many, many elements that distributed evenly. And this result is a visual system that required a viewer to move their eyes across the surface of the image rather than focusing on a one singular vanishing point. As Mirakami said, "Superflat is about the movement of the eye, movement of the gaze. So it's a sort of a new kind of Visual status require a new kind of vision. Instead of focusing on one singular point of the image, we are now supposed to be scanning, moving our eyes, scanning around the whole surface of the image. And in this book, I argue that superflat is not only a visual style of anime or of Japanese culture, in particular, but rather is a broader, much broader visual aesthetics of digital hypermediacy, because uh, what is generates by superflat is not simply a visual field that requires a moving gaze, but it's rather an information field that demands navigation. So, because there are too many visual elements on the visual field, you have to move your eyes and navigating the visual field as if it's information field. That's why I connect Superflat aesthetics with the interface design of our many digital media entities such as Facebook. Um, as aesthetics of network uh, mediation, the meaning of Superflat as information field is very ambivalent. On one hand, this information field is very distributed, which allow user participation into the media protection. For example, many otaku and the and the geek fans produce a lot of their own fan work. And today's a lot of digital users participate in the uh, media production as exemplified by uh, the works on social media networks such as YouTube, and Nico Nico, and Bilibili. So this distributed information field allows people to come in and participate as media producers. But on the other hand, this distributed information field is also tightly controlled and framed by the techno-economic logic of the information capitalism. For example, the algorithm structure of Facebook frames our participatory experience of this media, this particular platform as a consumer within this monetization system. So therefore, the distributive system allow you to come in, but the framing field entrap you within this commodification system of monetization. So therefore, superflat overall as a visual aesthetic of digital mediation, even though it mobilized our gaze into this distributed field, however, it ultimately framed the subject within frame human subject within the um, algorithmic structure and the commodity matrix of information capitalism, and this tension or contradiction between the distributiveness versus the framing structure is what we learn from Superflat about the knowledge culture on social media and the computer networks.
0: Well, uh, to end perhaps on a lighter note, uh, going away from monetization and and social networks to perhaps more uh, core and and pleasurable things. uh, What anime or other media might you recommend our listeners watch if they want to understand Zhai culture in China better?
1: Uh, Okay. In my opinion, to understand Zhai culture, instead of watching an anime, probably the more helpful way to get into Zhai culture is to log into Bilibili. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think probably the most representative media entity get to know Zhai culture is Bilibili rather than any particular media content such as anime or manga. Because Particularly because Bilibili is not a cultural content, it's not a film or an anime, but instead it's a digital platform, it's a technological system to represent a specific kind of mediation. And I think the key argument in my book is that the most interesting about Jai culture or anime given or geek culture broadly, is that it's not about certain kind of content, anime or manga game, but rather about a certain kind of mediation. That's why I argue in the book, anime is not a content, but a media environment. As in the media environment, this particular mediation centered on information searching, navigation consumption, and the Bilibili represent that kind of mode of mediation as a media environment rather than content in Jai culture. So therefore I would recommend you to go to Bilibili rather than watch anime, because for me anime is about this media environment such as Bilibili rather than a specific content such as Alan Gleon. And I would recommend anyone who's interested in Jai culture to go to bilibili.com. And if you are even interested, you can even log in to sign in to even get a, a user membership or even to pass exam. As I mentioned in the book, you know, at Bilibili, in order to post the Danmalku comments, you have to pass a test. Okay, so for regular user, if you haven't been to Bilibili, you probably know as a regular, just normal user, you can read the Danmalku, you cannot input, you cannot write the comments. In order to write comments, you have to pass exam <laughs> to be a real member. So if anybody really wants to know Chinese culture, I recommend go to Bilibili and try to learn your way through uh, passing the exam, which is really difficult. I spent a lot of time trying to get in there and try to get a meaningful membership through this round of exam and test to get to the membership to know what a knowledge culture means for Chinese Jai culture. And so therefore you can have a sense of not only the range the scale of Jai culture there, but also get into the depth. What do you want to be a giant, You need to learn and to study. You need to really work hard. That it's truly a knowledge work in addition to this knowledge consumption. It's really a working way through Jai culture, you know, to be a Jai, you have to work hard. So therefore, I think to experience how Jai is a truly a knowledge culture, involve a lot of work and pleasure, I recommend to everyone to go to billy not only as a casual viewer, but also try to get your membership by passing the exam and test, if you know Chinese, of course, because most of the exams are in Chinese. But if you don't know Chinese, I think you can still just watch the video. You know, get a sense of how the demo, the comments flying over screen can be overwhelming, can generate what I call the cybernetic effect through this particular media environment.
0: Yeah. And I guess even if you know Chinese, the exams are not necessarily it's easy. It's very
1: difficult. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I, that's what I argue in the, the in the chapter of the book, right? It's truly a knowledge culture by learning and studying and the, and the practicing. So that's, I think. I think this kind of exam pretty demonstrates what it means to be jai in China. It's not really fun, right, by the way.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I, I really love that suggestion. Very immersive <laughs> uh, suggestion. Yes. Um, well, thank you, yeah. Jin Ying. This was an enriching conversation. Uh, listeners, if you want to learn more about what we discussed in this episode, look for Jin Ying these book, Animes, Knowledge, Cultures. Jin Ying, thanks again for coming on the New Books Network.
1: And thank you so much for inviting me here. It's such a great pleasure talking with you about the book.